on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. Jonathan Rutledge about the topic of his latest book on atonement and forgiveness. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is atonement? What is forgiveness? How are they connected? What does he mean by having a value-driven inquiry and exegetically engaged analytic theology? Can we really use analytic theology and philosophy without subordinating scripture and tradition? Where does atonement fit in the prodigal son? Where is, is atonement unnecessary for forgiveness in the parables in general? Why is atonement necessary for full forgiveness? What, what's the idea behind that? Why was a sacrifice required to deal with both moral and non-moral dimensions of sin? in order to bring about divine human reconciliation and much, much more. Obviously, I've already whet your appetite, so you're going to be really excited for this tremendous interview. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those places, or check us out our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. I'm riding solo today, so as you know, that means that I get to ask the basic definitions if you're a regular listener. It also means that I have no one to keep me in check, so look out. Uh, <laughs> we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church, and in being serious, we want to be serious about Christian virtue. So we've endeavored to create an intellectual culture of charity curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we hope that we embody those sort of things in podcast, online interaction, our online publications, on our website, and, and other locations. So hopefully we're doing that. And if we're not, at least hopefully we're encouraging others to do it if we're failing. And hopefully we're pushing ourselves to do it more anyway. Now today, I'm looking forward to this interview a lot. Uh, I think Dr. Jonathan Rutledge, who I don't know how many of our listeners are going to know. I think you should know him. After, and I think you'll realize that after the end of the interview, because I think he's, he's super smart. He's really cool. Uh, and he's publishing some awesome stuff. So let's, let's talk about it. We're going to be talking about forgiveness, atonement, and all sorts of things related to that, because he's got a new book coming out. I don't remember when the date, the date of this recording, the book is not out yet. So I've got a pre-pub version that's, I guess, you know, not completely done, uh, but it's given me enough to, to have a great discussion about it and to encourage you to go buy the book when it is available. So depending on when you're listening, it might be available, it might not, I'll tell you when it is. So let's, let's go ahead and, Jonathan, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to us, give us a little bit of background, where you've been, what you're doing, and, and why focus and think and study on forgiveness and atonement and related concepts. Sure. Well, th first, let me just say thanks for having me on, Jordan. This is a really fun opportunity for me because um, I, so the past two, three, I don't really remember time anymore uh, these days. But anyway, for a while, I was doing the Logos Institute podcast over at St. Andrews and some of my uh, good friends, a few students who are over there have taken over it. Um, but I don't often get to be on this side of an interview. Um, so it's, it's fun to change things up, um, on that. So thanks again for having me. Um, now in terms of my background, just briefly to get us into this forgiveness and atonement stuff and the book, uh, if you have a lot of expendable, uh, just income that you can spend on a Rutledge academic book, you should buy it. Um, because, uh, hopefully enough, uh, copies get sold that it'll become paperback so that people with less income, uh, to just throw away on books can, uh, buy a copy as well. But, um, so it's, it's going to be expensive, probably over a hundred bucks when it first comes out, I imagine. Um, but the target date is like April, 2022, something like that. Um, 
But it all depends on when the proofs get back to me and those sorts of things. But anyway, I'll stop boring your listeners with technical publishing ridiculous stuff. Um, Yeah, so I kind of came into theology first uh, through analytic philosophy. So I started and did a PhD in philosophy at the University of Oklahoma. And I was working with Linda Zagzebski, um, who, if you don't know her... um, Go uh, learn who she is. She's one of the great philosophers of the 20th century. Um, I mean, I'm biased, but she's one of my favorites, right? So, um, But I did work on the problem of evil and specifically a particular response to problems of evil called skeptical theism. And um, at the end of that PhD, um, the University of St. Andrews had a big grant that Alan Torrance um, basically was in charge of the Lagos Institute and I'd been interesting, interested in doing some work in theology because I did philosophy of religion. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do philosophy of religion well, um, I mean, it would help to at least learn a little bit more about the language of theology from theologians instead of, um, you know, just trying to pick up what I could on my own. Um, so Linda and I sat down, had a chat about it, and I ended up applying and getting into a PhD program there at St. Andrews did that. Um, and then that rolled over into podcasting and then, uh, also being a research fellow. So I was a, a postdoc, postdoctoral scholar for three years at St. Andrews before where I am now, um, working at, back in philosophy of religion at the center for philosophy of religion at Notre Dame. So I'm back stateside, um, which is good. Um, and spent most of the pandemic, uh, across the pond. Um, but the way that I got into forgiveness, I mean, there there are various reasons for going that way. I mean, one was that the grant itself had four big questions, one of which was, what is forgiveness? Uh, so that immediately is like a first reason that I looked at it. But another one is that there's some sort of like natural continuity between dealing with the problem of evil in this sort of theoretical philosophy level, and then wanting to look at evil and suffering, and then sin, which I take to be a broader concept than pure, just evil by itself. Um and seeing how Christian theology is actually approaching it, because the ways that scholars like, say, Tom Wright, when he writes on the problem of evil, or Eleanor Stump, um, or Alvin Plantinga, when they write on the problem of evil, they have a lot of similar things that they'll say, and a lot of very different approaches to dealing with um, these questions. So it seemed like the theologian, um, at least in my reading, was dealing with these issues in much different ways, um, often, than many of the philosophers tended to. Which maybe isn't too surprising because even philosophers have different ways of approaching yeah. these things. But um, for what it's worth. So uh, the forgiveness one, because of that background, seemed most interesting to me. Um, and uh, I ended up going that way. And also connecting it with atonement uh, was important to me because I'd been doing some work at a church um, where I just had to do a presentation for like a small group on what is atonement? How does this work? And then as I was reading through the literature, I thought, I just don't know the answer to this. <laughs> I've got a bunch of theories that I can sort of explain, and I understand how they're supposed to work, but I don't know how they match up with, one, uh, the biblical text, or two, the sorts of values and um, moral theories that should be undergirding, uh, say, the scriptural text as well, or are sort of like behind the scenes, assumed in scripture maybe. Um, so that sort of piqued my curiosity, and that's why I ended up uh, going in this direction. So, um, and now it's a book that's called Forgiveness and Atonement. So, so a couple of things on that. Number one, if you're interested in Linda Zygzebski, by the time this episode drops, 
that uh, we'll have an episode already with Linda out. So go listen to it. Um, so oh, she's, that's awesome. she's fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Number two now. So thinking more on the topic, obviously, atonement, forgiveness, those sort of things. Can you give me some definitions? What, what do you mean by forgiveness? What do you mean by atonement? How are they connected? How are they not connected? Yeah, this is a complicated issue. Um, so, but I do analytic philosophy and theology. So supposedly I'm supposed to be able to at least give definitions. Okay, so I'll, I'll see what I can do. So I'm not going to um, spend much, if any, time like talking about other definitions. I'll just jump right into it and give you my take um, on things. And you tell me if you want me to chat about some other things. But um, one of the first things that came up when I was working through this book is I wanted to make sure that the language I was using for forgiveness and atonement was resonating with the language as it's used in Scripture. Um and we'll talk about complications with that particular claim when we get to atonement. But the first question is on just what is forgiveness? And um, I take a uh, a page out of the Psalms as well as uh, Paul when he's quoting the Psalms, um, which seems to indicate that forgiveness is something like not counting someone's sins against them. Um, and there are various ways to try and work out like this scriptural definition, um, as I take it anyways, um, and translate that into contemporary speech um, or our understanding using some of the concepts which are um, more um, modern in some sense. Um, And one way to do that, and I owe this treatment uh, a little bit, of course, to Nicholas Wolterstorff. So if you've read, he has two big justice books, Justice, um, Rights and Wrongs, and then Justice and Love. And both of those books heavily influenced how I sort of think about these things. Um, But the translation that I give for the scriptural claim that to forgive is to not count someone's sins against them is to treat someone as if they are excusable for the wrong they've committed rather than blameworthy. So let me repeat that. To treat someone as if they are excusable for the wrong they've committed rather than blameworthy. now, to, it might help to give an, ex, an example of uh, what sorts of conditions um, allow for someone to be excusable for wronging someone instead of uh, morally blameworthy. So let's just take a toy case, a basic one. Um, so suppose that I, contrary to my better judgment, go to Starbucks um, and decide I want to get a coffee. Um, so I get in line. My name is Jonathan. Um, and it turns out that the person in front of me has the same name as me also named Jonathan. I don't notice this, though. This is completely you know, outside of my perception. I didn't realize that this person had my name. But we go through and we order a drink, and suppose we both order the same drink. Um, and then we're both waiting to pick up our coffee, and the barista says, um, Jonathan, there's a caramel latte here, right, uh, with your name, uh, name on it. So I hear that, and I go and pick up the, the drink. But it turns out, because the other person ordered before me, it was technically their drink. So I've taken something which is not mine. I didn't pay for this one. I paid for the next one. Um, and in some sense, I've wronged them, right? There was They have a claim right to that drink, and I've deprived them of that. Um, but of course, everybody who's listening to this will immediately realize like, oh, well, you just made a mistake, right? You weren't aware that you were wronging them. Um, you had a clear and obvious explanation for why it was that you behaved the way that you did. It's very intelligible to you. 
Um, so I take, in that case, um, the, the idea is that I have wronged somebody, but I'm not blameworthy for it. It's understandable in an important way why I acted as I did. Um, and so I'm excused in virtue of that. Um, there's no, like, intentionality to wrong someone um, that sort of out of which uh, this the, the theft of the coffee or something like that flows, right? So it doesn't tell you anything about my moral character that I wronged this person. It's just a part of my history that uh, doesn't really tell you anything about, like, um, my regard for that other human being or anything like that. So there's a lengthy example. Um, of excusability. I love examples. People who give examples are the best people. So I love it. Um, yeah. So the reason we, that we gave that example, though, is remember, it's the, the forgiveness definition is to treat someone as if they're excusable rather than blameworthy. Um, now, you could uh, tr- take the definition of forgiveness to be something like this, to treat or sorry, to excuse someone rather than blame them for a wrong. But that's not what I said. That's a bad view of forgiveness. What I said is to treat them as if they are excusable rather than blameworthy. And the as if's important because, in fact, if you have committed a sin, you are morally guilty. You, in fact, are blameworthy in many cases. Um, and it seems like, uh, in virtue of that, you can still treat them as if they're excusable, but still regard them and know that they're blameworthy for it, right? Um, so, for instance, suppose I, in fact, did intend to steal the coffee cup. Uh, from the person in front of me, I thought, oh, may- maybe I heard that their name was the same as mine and they had the same order. So I thought, oh, here's my chance to get up in line without anyone being mad at me. Well, then I will have actually committed a wrong, but they might still choose to treat me as if I'm excusable because maybe it's just like too much trouble for them to really care and like try and hold me accountable. They'd rather just move on with it. Um, but uh, in that case, right, the importance is that you can actually forgive um, in this case, because uh, I have actually committed a moral wrong. But in the former case, because I wasn't blameworthy to begin with, there's no forgiving me. I'm just excused. So so I, I'm curious now, uh, just thinking about forgiveness and, and such. I mean, how do your definitions track? And maybe you don't know the answer to this, and that's fine. But how do they possibly track with contemporary psychology and sort of counseling literature? Because I think that's a relevant topic, uh, pretty popular yeah. in those sort of disciplines. So are you similar to what they're saying, different, distinct in certain ways? Yeah, so I, I, I take myself to be um, both similar and different. Um, so one important thing in contemporary psychology is oftentimes uh, forgiveness is just taken to be something akin to a very tr- typical uh, definition of forgiveness that comes originally from Bishop John Butler, um, that to forgive is to forswear some sort of resentment, some sort of negative emotion that one has directed towards the wrongdoer or towards their action. Um, so uh, this way of understanding forgiveness um, presupposes that in order for someone to forgive, they need to have negative reactions, right? You need to have anger or at least be capable of having such things. Um, in order to conceive of uh, such a person being able to forgive. And that typically is in the background of a lot of um, psychological work on this. Uh, Therapeutic forgiveness. Someone might be counseled to forswear their resentment against a wrongdoer. Um, Just get rid of your anger because it's good for you. Um, And that, on my view, that actually might be a sufficient reason to encourage someone to do that. Um, But I don't take that to necessarily entail that they've forgiven a person. Um, so, and this will bring some of the other, 
components of how I think about forgiveness into play. So when I say that to forgive is to treat someone as if they're excusable rather than morally blameworthy for something or blameworthy more generally, um, I'm thinking of this as a definition that's a functional definition. So I call it functional forgiveness. Um, And what I mean by that is uh, that in order to forgive someone, you have to ask some questions. You have to ask things like, what would it mean to treat someone as excusable or not hold this particular wrong against them in this context? What kind of agent is involved in doing the forgiving? And what kind or level of offense is being forgiven? Um, And this is important, especially given the forswearing of resentment claim. Because so suppose you're a classical theist. I think I am. I'm not sure. You like, know you want to be. I know on some definitions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I know that I think that Ryan Mullins would probably think I'm not a classical theist. And that's good because then I don't have to be, uh, you know, the target of all of his very interesting arguments. Um, but I tend to still want to ca- claim the label to some extent. Set that aside. Just take a classic classical theist. Um, they're going to say that God doesn't have negative emotions. Um, but then if we're going to talk about forgiveness and God forgiving, of course, the language of forgiveness is going to be um, sort of, well, it's going to be equivocal, um, perhaps analogical, right, depending on how you spell it out. Um, but I tend to want to uh, endorse a view that allows the fundamental nature of forgiveness to be univocal as applied to agents as well as God, with a caveat that um, because it's a functional definition when you try to spell out what it is for somebody to forgive and you take into account the type of agent that you're talking about, well, God and human beings are different types of agents. So what it is for God to forgive does in fact look very different um, from what it is for me to forgive. I mean, for one example, God seems to be maybe the proper sort of being to be a judge of all of your sin, whereas I am not the proper sort of person to be a judge of all your sin, say Jordan or whatever. Um, And presumably that might make a difference to what treating someone as if they're excusable actually requires beforehand as well as looks like once it occurs. Um, So it's a functional definition of forgiveness because to forgive will be a function of at least three things. The agents under consideration, the type of norm that's being violated, which I think we'll probably come more to in in a little bit, and then the broader context of the wrong and the parties that are involved. Okay, so before we get too much further into that, I, I, this is, I mean, a little bit off topic, but it's not. Question I did, I did want you to spend some time cashing out for me. So you use this terminology of value-driven inquiry and exegetically engaged analytic theology, and I like that. And I wanted you to spell that out just a little bit because I think oftentimes when people hear analytic theology, uh, they think that there's some sort of either intentional or unintentional subordination between, you know, scripture and these analytic philosophy sort of things where it's philosophies taken, taken in the driver's seat. So walk me through what you're trying to do there and how you can ensure that scripture maintains a, a sort of supreme role in, in some sense. Yeah, thanks. This is a really important question, I think. Um, because you're right, it gets confused. Well, in my view, it's confused um, in most of the critiques. Um, But so I'll take it in turn. So I'll start first with in terms of value um, driven inquiry. All I mean by that is that if we're going to look at a concept like forgiveness, or knowledge, understanding, or um, atonement, or whatever, 
we need there, there are a lot of different concepts that go by the name of forgiveness or a lot of different concepts that go by the name of knowledge, um, both in academic inquiry as well as just generally in society. So sometimes it's worth taking the time to just figure out specifically why you care about a particular concept um, that you're trying to locate within this range of various competing concepts that go by the same name. So when I talk about value-driven inquiry in the context of theology, and I'm talking about the nature of forgiveness, what I care about is, of course, I care to some extent about just figuring out, like, what are all these various understandings of forgiveness um, that are competing for, um, say, attention as the concept of forgiveness? I care about that, that maybe to some extent, though I doubt that there is an answer to the question of what is forgiveness, the understanding of forgiveness. But what's more important to me is to make sure that the scriptural language of forgiveness is tracking with the concept, um, because I have this prior assumption that getting the biblical concept or a biblical concept, maybe if I'm being more careful, um, is worth my time. And particularly because forgiveness is bound up, and we'll co- this will take us back around to the earlier question, it's bound up in important ways with atonement, right? We think that atonement is some sort of mechanism or means um, that is aimed at union with God, which requires some sort of forgiveness between us and God, right? So atonement aims at forgiveness in some sense. Um, and so if you lose the connection between the type of forgiveness that Scripture is positing um, there and atonement, then you're no longer looking at the concept that's really central and important for this robust doctrine uh, that we have very little uh, creedal commitment um, and guidance um, to, to learn about. So so that's the value-driven thing is to ground, like, why do I care about forgiveness? I care about it because it's grounded in this theological value that I hold, right? That I care about the Christian conception that's operating here and how it's tied up with atonement. Um and then the, in terms of the exegetically engaged stuff, um, I, I should be careful because I don't want to give the impression in the book um, that analytic theology does not care about Scripture or that analytic philosophy doesn't care about Scripture more generally. I don't think that's true, right? Uh, no one would walk away from reading like Tom McCall's analytic um, Christology book and think, oh, Scripture's so pff, just like un- unnecessary to understand what's going on here in this book. Um, certainly you wouldn't walk away from reading Eleanor Stump's um, work and think that. I th- um, some people actually do, and I find it bewildering that they that such claims come from, from Eleanor's work. Um, the But I take it that it's not that she doesn't care about Scripture, um, it's that and that she's not engaged with, with Scripture. It's that these people have a disagreement about her particular hermeneutical models and such. Um, but sorry, that's an aside, right? The sort of basic view with exegetically engaged analytic theology is I think analytic theology is going to be at its best when it's trying to draw from the best scriptural scholarship of the day, right? So if you're going to be working on, um, you know, the Apostle Paul and his letters or something like that, and take justification, suppose the only person you draw from is Luther on justification. There are uh, a lot of people in the contemporary discussion you know, Richard Hayes, Tom Wright, Beverly Venta, I mean, Doug Campbell, who are doing new work that I take to be an improvement upon prior versions of what's going on, um, even in, you know, great reform texts or even in the fathers. I think that we do learn things in biblical scholarship. Um, and certainly like the um, explosion of, you know, Second Temple Judaism and the Dead Sea Scrolls and how those that context connects with 
um, reading of the New Testament. Um, all this stuff is really important, and there's an aspiration in uh, analytic theology, I think, that we try to take on board the lessons that we can from the biblical scholarship insofar as that's possible. Um, so it's like it's a fairly lofty yeah. goal because I'm not trained in biblical scholarship per se. I mean, I know I know some Greek, so I can you know make some translation moves here and there. I don't really know Hebrew so well, um, but at least if I ask the right people, they tell me I don't need to. Um, I just need to know the Septuagint. Um, but uh, if you don't like hearing that from me, um, I, I, I'm not endorsing that view. I'm just saying I've heard it as being a view that's out there. Um, in any case, um, you know, joking aside, uh, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a, it's an aspiration um, that's really hard to, to achieve by any single person, right? Because all of this theo- theology work is heavily interdisciplinary and has to be, um, you just have to acknowledge your limitations, yeah. right? I've done philosophy, I've done some theology, but there's a lot to theology and there's a lot to biblical scholarship and a lot to philosophy. I can't do it all, but I'll do my best to try and draw on all uh, those things. I mean, you've so. got double PhDs, so I mean, you're doing your, you're definitely doing your part. Um, <laughs> now, back to your book in particular, um, thinking about atonement. So you've got a whole chapter. I think it's like one of the first chapters on, I guess, atonement and the prodigal son. And I would imagine yeah. most people, when they read the prodigal son, atonement is not the first thing that comes to their mind. So change right. my mind. Why is atonement part of the prodigal son story? How, do, how does that relate? What What's going on there? Good. Yeah, so I don't... Well, so it may or may not be a part of the prodigal son. So that's maybe a disappointing sort of first thing to say. But maybe before I directly address that question, I should say something about atonement for our audience. Because I do think the definition of atonement is how you define it is important for answering this question, right? So um, just a quick history, right? The word atonement in the English language was a neologism. Um, It was used by William Tyndale in the 1500s to translate... Um, Yom Kippur in Leviticus twenty three twenty eight. So that's the Day of Atonement, Yom Day, uh, Yom Kippur. Um, he translates it there um, as atonement. That's you know a brand new English word entered into uh, our language at that point. But he also uses um, it to translate Second Corinthians five eighteen through nineteen, um, the word catalogues, um, and there you might tend to want to translate that as reconciliation rather than atonement these days. In fact, in contemporary translations, you often will find that instead. Um, But nevertheless, in the case of Tyndale, he chose to translate it as atonement. And it basically meant precisely what it sounds like. So if you hear atonement said, you might not notice it immediately, but it's sort of like a compound word. At, the first two letters, one meant uh, so it means coming, being at one with another, or being reconciled actually is a reasonable way to understand what's going on there, or being unified um, with another. So that's at least how the word came into the English language, was being used in this literal way to um, be at one with God. Um, either humanity becomes at one with God, or the people of Israel become at one with Israel's God, right? Um but we don't use the word exactly as Tyndale introduces it into the language anymore, right? We've, of course, we talk of atonement and it is union with God when we speak about it as an end state, as something we want to achieve or want to see achieved by God. But we also use it to talk about 
the things that we have to do to get to that end state, the means or the mechanisms that get us union. Um, so like what's a theory of atonement um, dealing with? Well, it's getting to union with God by penal substitution, some sort of theory of sacrifice. But the mechanisms of atonement are, um, in fact, referred to often in our language. So it's important to keep in mind that there, there's this sort of broad or sorry, that there are these two senses of atonement as the end and then atonement as the thing that gets us to the end. Um, and it gets more complicated, right? Because there is even uh, within looking at, say, just the mechanism question. So if we're talking about atonement mechanisms, we even have narrow and broad senses of those mechanisms. Um, and the narrow sense uh, tends to line up with more like the things which bring justification if you're a Protestant. Um, they deal with some sort of normative issue, something which precludes union between us and God, but isn't like reducible to just issues of our character or other parts of our psychology. Um, those And those are the sorts of things, right, which are bound up with just not justification, but sanctification. So it's narrow insofar as it's dealing with mostly issues dealing with justification that are normative obstacles to our union with God. Whatever the reason for their normativity, right? It may be a problem in God. It may be a problem in us. It may be a problem located elsewhere, independently of either us or God. Um, but it's narrow in that sense and it's normative. Then there's this broader sense of the word atonement that includes the narrow bits, but also expands all the way to include sanctification aspects, right? And when you read, for instance, Eleanor Stump's work on atonement, oftentimes she's dealing with these psychological questions of like, how do we become the sort of person who is open to union with God, which involves character development um, and dealing with, say, our own responses to our shame, um, another often too often neglected concept in issues of atonement. But the sort of atonement that she's dealing with in those cases uh, seems to be broader. It subsumes both justification and sanctification. So it's sort of broad picture. And so questions in like Roman Catholic theology might allow that um, a doctrine of purgatory right, can contribute to atonement theory um, in the broad sense, but it wouldn't be relevant, obviously, in the justification sense. Um, though, of course, this gets complicated on uh, with disagreements between Protestants and Catholics on how to contrast those two things. Yeah, th those are helpful distinctions of definitions. So now I'm curious, prodigal son, how, how does this relate? Yeah. Yeah, so going back to the prodigal son, I mean, I take it that um, what, what would be nice is if there was a tight-knit, um, clearly present, always required connection between atonement and forgiveness, right? Um, the problem is that it's just not obvious that we always have to have whatever this atonement stuff is. If we're thinking in the narrow sense in particular of dealing with the normative issue, it's just not always obvious that we need to have atonement present in order to forgive people. Um, so you may know the work of Robin Collins. He does a lot of work in intelligent design um, crowd things, but he also has this really provocative paper. I don't recall if he actually published it anywhere, but it's available online on his website where he gives a retelling. It's, it's meant to be an attack on penal substitution. And he uses the parable of the prodigal son and tries to retell it in line with the sort of theory of atonement that penal substitution requires as he understands it. And when you read through it, you think, oh my goodness, you're right. If like forgiveness really does require penal substitution, then the prodigal son is just complete nonsense. Um, what's going on here? Um, I mean, you don't see there's, so the son, in order to be received back by the father, we need to find somebody else to punish 
to justify the father's reception of his son. Maybe the older son would be a good candidate. Who knows? But you know, when you read it, you might think, oh, this is really problematic for penal substitution theories of atonement. Now, you might have other worries about penal substitution theories of atonement uh, outside of this. But what I want to at least suggest is that there's a misstep methodologically here, um, that at least when we're looking at the prodigal son, we're, we're dealing with a case of forgiveness. That's true. But I don't think that forgiveness in every case requires atonement. And this is one in particular where it's not clear that it does. And it's also not obvious that the same sort or type of atonement has to be required um, in every case. Um, it's it will be at least dependent on the type of wrong that's been committed and the results of it. Um, so if there is atonement in the prodigal son, it's because the son actually has some sort of implicit um, repentance in virtue of coming back to the father. I'm not convinced that there is such repentance uh, because I think he was just hungry and had no other choice. <laughs> right? At least you can certainly read the text there. The text does not require you to think that he's repentant at all. Um, now maybe he is right. It's, it's left open properly speaking, but I, if there's any sort of, uh, atonement, I think it could be there. And in virtue of that, then you might think that, oh, well, given that he's repented, he's distanced himself from his offense to his father. So now it's okay for his father to forgive him. But even the way I just talked about it, right? Oh, now it's okay for his father to forgive him and embrace him. That just seems bizarre, right? Like, of course, in our own interactions, we're going to just immediately go into forgiveness without requiring atonement if we're a loving parent in those cases. So long, um, and this is an important caveat, um, as we think the forgiveness that we're offering them is actually good for them. So in this case, I think that it's plausible for the father to see where his son is, see that his son is not going to, um, could not be much worse off right now, and to forgive his son, to treat his son as if he's excusable rather than morally blameworthy for offending him with the hope that this new relationship of forgiveness that um, is brought into being itself would lead him to his good, would actually be good for his son. Um, and I think that's a perfectly plausible way to read um, the, the prodigal son, in which case there's no atonement there. Um, really, there's no atonement required for forgiveness. But this gets difficult mm -hmm. then, because if you look and think about the par parable, um, it seems like God, the father, is the father in the story. And then Israel, um, which is going away. This is a very Tom Wright reading of it. But Israel goes away and then returns because Christ comes as Israel, as the representative. And Israel um, then uh, participates in the return with Christ. Um but and then then God forgives um, Israel in light of uh, Christ's actions. But you might think that that telling of the story just suppresses all of the other stuff that does in fact have to happen for atonement. And there's nothing inconsistent um, for like a gospel writer in just suppressing that other detail because of course the other detail is going to be there. And Paul, it's going to be a part of the oral community that they're all a part of as well. Um, so. Uh, so then the, to, to re sort of briefly summarize then, so is atonement in the prodigal son? Well, I mean, maybe yes, maybe no, but not in any obviously robust sense, but that doesn't tell us a whole lot about how atonement might be related to forgiveness at the larger level of God forgiving all of humanity, because the story is about a father son relationship 
that's very particular. Yeah, I mean, a text that comes to my mind is Romans 5, 8, right? While we were still sinners, God forgave us. Um, it doesn't seem, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I guess that's probably assuming a whole bunch of metaphysical baggage underneath that. But just on its face, that text seems to, to yep. fit with what you're saying. So you're you're saying, and I guess at least in certain parables, forgiveness is unnecessary. Then do you say, and I, I can't remember if you do, uh, is atonement necessary for full forgiveness? Um, is full forgiveness different from just your regular everyday forgiveness? Yeah, so um, I say that, but what I mean by that is at the larger level of the narrative of humanity. So basically, um, let's see. Let me think about how to how to put this in a nutshell. I mean, basically, I think um, that there's a sort of theological story that you can tell about original sin, um, where humanity, the corporate entity humanity of which all of us are members, um, was given a mandate by God um, in, at creation. Um, to uh, basically mediate and reflect his loving sovereignty and rule to all of creation, and then to reflect also creation's worship perfectly back to God, right? So this is the notion of like a two-way mirror that comes up in some biblical scholarship understandings of the image of God. Um, and clearly, at least as the, the story goes, historically, we've seemed to have not done very well on carrying on fulfilling that mandate, right? We've we failed um, to satisfy the divine command um, that's there. In virtue of which, I take it that we have sinned. We've actually we're guilty of not um, fulfilling our obligations. Um, and what's important is in that case, humanity, the corporate entity, is guilty of not fulfilling its obligation to uh, satisfy the divine mandate. And then we, as members of humanity, have failed in our obligations to do uh, to see to it that our group of humanity um, would fulfill that mandate. And those are actually different obligations if you get into the to like the details of how it's worked out. Um, but they're both connected to original sin. Um, and I take it as well that sin um, has bad consequences that you. I mean, it's reasonable to cash them out as moral consequences, but also reasonable to cash them out as non-moral consequences. They're just the things that happen because of this bad moral wrong. They're sourced in a moral um, issue, but themselves, uh, the moral valence is sort of, you know, it, it's more semantics than um, anything sub- substantial. Um, but basically, I think that it is bad for us to not have fulfilled this mandate and be in relation with God. Um, this is the sort of normative issue. Um, It's not because God wouldn't want to be in relationship with us in that state. It's that it would be for our bad. Um, And it's in virtue of the atoning work of Christ that we come to fulfill the mandate. Christ um, lives a full life, dies, is resurrected, and then offers um, a sacrifice on the heavenly altar, all in fulfillment of offering perfect worship back to God from creation and also reflects perfect divine loving rule to creation. Um, in his life and ministry. So he actually fulfills both sides of that mandate himself. And in virtue of being a member of humanity, the group comes to fulfill that mandate through him. Um, so participation mm-hmm. language is going to be resonant here. Um, and that's why atonement ends up being required is because there's this normative obstacle that the only way to get rid of it and make forgiveness good for us as human beings is for, well, in this case, God to come as human um, and do it um, on our behalf. So, so I've got so. one more question related to that, and I'm going to use this as a yeah. wet our listeners' appetite, not give away the whole thing, because uh, I think 
the, there's a yeah. lot of great stuff in the book that I'd have fun talking about. It'd last us two hours. It would be awesome. But I want people to actually go get it. And as I always tell people, if it's 100 bucks, tell your library to buy it. They usually will. And that way you can get a cheaper paperback version for yourself down the road. So on, on along the lines of more this more corporate uh, idea, why is a sacrifice required uh, to deal with both moral and non-moral sort of dimensions of sin in order to bring about that reconciliation? What's the, what's the purpose behind the sacrifice? Yeah, um, this is also a complicated question. All these things get complicated, right? Um, so um, tying in with the exegetically engaged aspect of what I'm doing here. Um, so if you go and read a lot of atonement theories, oftentimes, I mean, satisfaction theory, um, penal substitution, various other ones, um, they're really interesting and important things to read on how those models connect with scripture, right? So I don't want to say that they're not scripturally adequate, um, but I do worry about how they capture the motif of sacrifice itself. Um, because uh, if you read a lot of the contemporary biblical scholarship, I think, um, so the person who's most influenced me is David Moffat. He has a book called... Um, Hebrews and the Logic of the Resurrection that is stellar on these sorts of things, and he has a lot of other articles that you could access maybe. Um, but uh, basically, um, the idea that sacrifice is this process in which you transfer your sin to an animal, and then it is killed, and in virtue of which bears the punishment which ought to have been yours, um, it's just not really, if you read very closely in Leviticus, it doesn't seem that that's what's going on. You do have sin transfer in Leviticus, but you find it in Leviticus 16. Um, and you find it being transferred to a goat that is not sacrificed, right? The goat is sent away, um, uh, out of the camp to carry the residue of sin, whatever this stuff is, the consequence of having sin, bringing like this substance into the camp being taken away. That's where, um, the transfer of sin goes to right, and then the the goat that's actually sacrificed, you've it's it's a it's a sin offering, right? Um, but sin offerings are uh, not carrying your sin or taking your place; they're just the animal that you're offering up to God um, as uh, a means of expiating um, the results of the sin and stuff like that. So, um, anyway, so I take it that biblically speaking, it's difficult to take sacrifice is strictly equivalent to something like penal substitution. Um, but I think that's the best option if you're wanting to go for a lot of the contemporary theories to try and figure out how to make sense of that. Um, so since I was not satisfied with what I take to be the best sort of alternative option, I thought, okay, well, I need to think very carefully about this um, and go read some more of the sacrifice stuff. So the book of Hebrews um, is a really interesting place to go to because uh, out of all of scripture, if you want to know about a mechanism of atonement, it's one of those that very carefully and thoughtfully exegetes scripture. The Psalms, of course, are like resonant throughout all of this to try and explain how it is that Christ atones for the sin of humanity. Um, and it does so by saying that, well, he dies, uh, lived a perfect life in obedience to God, and in virtue of that receives inexhaustible, indestructible resurrection life after which he ascends to the heavenly <laughs> temple, um, walks through uh, the heavenly temple and offers a sacrifice um, according to the order of Melchizedek and not the Levitical order um, for the sins of humanity or the people or Israel. Um, 
And of course, all of the ways of talking about these things gets complicated as well. But what was significant is I thought, oh, well, atonement in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in Hebrews, that's just central. That's what's going on. And rarely do we get mention of Yom Kippur in like a very central way elsewhere. And the notion of sacrifice is bound up with in covenants, at least in ancient Judaism. Um, And the Levitical covenant is where sacrifices take place. We have a sort of loose understanding of the word sacrifice, where we might say that you can offer sacrifices outside of the Levitical covenant. Maybe like in in Exodus, you might have a Passover sacrifice. But strictly speaking, in Exodus, when you go look at the Passover, at least that event, um, the, the slaughter of the Passover lamb is not about sin, right? Uh, because it's not that the people of Israel have sinned that they're offering this lamb. Presumably they have in some sense, maybe, unless you think that sin is only contingent on having some sort of um, law already in place. I don't think that, but I could see someone saying something like that. Um, but it's offered to ward off the angel of death, right? And to add, and presumably also as a means of sort of symbolically pushing against the political power of Egypt in the same way that the cross is uh, sort of after the after effect of the cross is the defeat of death, as well as pushing it back against the Roman authorities and powers that are in play there. Um, So I, I say that just to say, I don't want to bracket off Passover. I think Passover is really important, but I like to bring us into the sacrifice of Yom Kippur, because I think, strictly speaking, that's where the sacrifice takes place. And Passover is something which is, of course, present and important in its own ways. But technically speaking, it's a ritual yeah. um, that's not dealing with the sin issue. The sin issue is dealt with primarily by the sacrifice itself. That's um, fascinating, man. It's so yeah. I, I would be curious if we had more time. How do we like? How does your unique research and all the research that's been going on for the last, I feel like, twenty plus years? Can we fit that with more traditional reformed understandings? Like, is, is it a square hole, square hole, yeah. round peg, or I guess round hole, square peg? <laughs> I guess if it was the other way around, it'd fit. Yeah, whatever um, it is. Yeah, I think those sorts of things are interesting because this is definitely not my area. I don't, I don't feel super competent to, sure. to think through atonement and all that kind of stuff. But I, I've got to imagine. So, just give me a sixty second answer. Do you think it's possible to say, hey, I want to hold to traditional reform sort of understanding doctrines and fit these sort of things together? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so there's your two second answer. Um, <laughs> let me add a few seconds. Um, I mean, I, I take it part of it is because the reason I say that is because, well, you might have a meta theory for like what a doctrine does in the first place. And so a doctrine of atonement might be like, here's my best explanation um, of what's going on here, but this is just a particular facet of a diamond or something like that. And the other facets maybe shed more light on what's going on. Perhaps none of them have the full truth um, or you think that, right? So these sort of meta claims um, would make it fairly easy, I think, to to take what I'm doing and then fit it in with a reformed understanding or most almost any understandings because, frankly, you just don't have conciliar commitments on yeah. atonement. You need to believe in the forgiveness right. of sins. Okay, thanks. That's good. Um, presumably you need to believe some stuff scripturally, like that Christ rose from the dead, though, of course, uh, depending on what journals you're trying to, um, submit stuff to, they might reject you for requiring something that strong, (laughs) but you know, you know, anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, the short answer is that there's just not a whole lot that you're required, um, in terms of conciliar commitments as a traditional Christian, if you're trying to appeal to Christian tradition as some sort of, um, you know, epistemic authority and, scriptures just really 
hard to interpret <laughs> and interpret in a way which um, sort of rules out any plausible other interpretation, right, whatsoever. It's, it underdetermines a lot of issues. And in virtue of that, because you can say um, you can uh, sort of privilege one particular scripture over another in ways that influence how the overall interpretation is going to come about, um, this happens in divine attributes discussions, and it happens the same exact way, I think, in questions of atonement. Um, because of that, uh, there's a lot of flexibility. That, that, that's awesome. So, well, I, I want to commend all of our listeners to check out your book uh, when it comes out. So depending on when this comes out, I don't know the date. It'll either be coming out or will have been out. So go find it, get a copy, tell your library to get it. If you're interested in uh, learning more about Jonathan's work, he's got a website, jonathanrutledge.com. You can find a CV, publications, projects, teaching, media, all sorts of things like that. So I tell you, go find it out. I think uh, there's you know, there's lots of smart people, but there's not as many smart people who are cool and to like talk to and you'd want to actually hang out with. I think Jonathan's one of those people, as you can tell. So I commend his work to you. Go, go find him. He's on Twitter, too. So go find him there. Follow him. Uh, you can keep up with him there and all the cool work that he's got coming out uh, along the many years to come. So I'm excited for it. And for all who've been listening, thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.